Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. Uh, while you remain standing, I want to read uh, just one verse of Scripture real quick. Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, verse number 26. I'm going to draw from the time of year, this time of year that we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord and talk to you tonight about something from that setting. Verse 26 of Luke 23 says, And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. That's verse 25. I'm supposed to read the next verse. I'm sorry. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him that laid the cross, on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus, or that he would carry the Lord's cross walking after Jesus in the procession that day. Uh, I want to talk to you for a few moments tonight. Uh, in this fact that exists, and it's something that we need to talk about and think about from time to time. Some people have a problem with the cross, and it's various uh, kinds of problems. There are different kinds of problems, but if someone has a problem with the cross of Christ, there's something wrong. Amen. So I talk to you tonight about this subject, the problem with the cross. The Lord blesses his word. You may be seated. And um, I want to lay the scene for you. Now, Sunday, we're going to be talking about the fact that Jesus arose from the dead in a glorious resurrection, victorious over death, hell and the grave. But tonight, let's go back a few days, back in time before that to the date was Friday, April 11th, 32 AD. The time was sometime between 9 and 10 in the morning. The place was at the city gate of the city of Jerusalem. The setting was a very large crowd of people that had gathered there, some in sympathy for the Lord, some in hate, and uh, everything in between. Some people came out just to satisfy their sense of curiosity to see what was going on. But it was uh, a very uh, tumultuous crowd. It was not orderly. Uh, I can imagine it was very disorderly. Some people are gloating and some people are shouting. The mob has been stirred up into a frenzy. Uh, some people are there, no doubt, in sympathy. Uh, others are weeping and wailing. And in those days, uh, let me just give you a little bit more background. When the Romans were going to crucify a criminal and Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire, uh, a victim of crucifixion, someone who had been deemed 
necessary to go through that because of their criminal activity judgment uh, would be passed and they would be taken from the judgment hall and set in the middle of a square a uh, squadron if you will of Roman soldiers whose task it was to crucify the uh, criminal that had had judgment passed upon them and these Roman soldiers were well picked for the job they were usually cons uh, uh, mercenaries men who fought not just for loyalty for Rome but for pay they were known to be very hardened very cruel men and they were good at what they did and as the prisoner was ushered out of the judgment hall into the uh, uh, hands of these Roman soldiers usually the cross was laid upon the victim's shoulders and then he was forced to march usually the longest possible route to take him to the place where he was to be crucified uh, in front of him would be one soldier marching with a sign of some kind a placard with something written on it that usually would uh, describe the person's crime and they did this not only uh, to humiliate the person but it was to serve as a notice to everybody else don't you get caught or rather don't do what this person did and if you do don't get caught because this is what may happen to you let's let's just rewind from that scene for just a few hours as Jesus stood in front of Pontius Pilate the Roman representative uh, there in Judea in a trial now no matter what happened no matter what witnesses were paraded forth that were paraded to lie on Jesus were called upon uh, after a while Pilate got the message he realized that this man was innocent that he really hadn't done anything especially worthy of death he may have at the very uh, least or at the very most broken some silly uh, law that the Hebrews the Jews had but he certainly wasn't worthy of being put to death uh, so Pilate stood back and at one point he actually said those words I find no fault in the man there was nothing uh, marring his character there was nothing about the ethics with which he lived his life that Pilate could find fault with no dishonesty but the crowd that was there again stirred up by the devil and stirred up by the men who hated uh, Jesus the religious leaders of the Jews the Pharisees the Sadducees the high priest and the company of priests they wanted Jesus dead because of course he was a direct affront and threat to their way of life to the people following them as they had for so many decades so the crowd was stirred up to crucify him so Pilate in his misguided plan decided to shift responsibility for the whole matter uh, to the crowd he wanted to uh, prey on their good nature their sense of rightness uh, or what was right and they said I'll tell you what I'll do he said uh, here we have this man who slated for crucifixion named Barabbas he's a murderer 
He has slain, uh, cruelly murdered several of your citizens. He was talking to the Jews, the crowd of people. He said, I'm going to give you a choice. Do you want me to release Barabbas and let him go free? Or do you want me to let Jesus Christ of Nazareth be the one to go free? Here Jesus had done nothing. Barabbas was a murderer, proven. They, they knew he did it. And Pilate, Pilate thought, surely they will choose to let Jesus go free and not let this man who's murdered people they know, maybe their neighbors, maybe their family members, surely not let Barabbas go free. But uh, because of the fervor of the crowd mentality and, of course, Satan working in the background, um, they made the choice, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. And so at that point, Pilate decides to wash his hands of the matter, and he, and he makes a huge deal. Uh, he, he performs this ceremony in front of all of the crowd of actually having somebody bring a, a bowl of water out and he washes his hands in front of all of them and says, all right, his blood be upon you, on your heads. I, I, um, I wash my hands of the matter. And did you know that at that point, there were actually voices from the crowd crying out, yes, his blood be upon us, his blood be upon us. And then they didn't stop there. The Bible says that they said these words, and his blood, let, let his blood, the blood of Jesus, be on our children. And little did they know that they were actually going to be the ones who made sure that that happened because that's what happened. Their children would have been alive about 30 years later, 37, 36, 37, 38 years later, when the marauding general Titus came and absolutely leveled the city of Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, and hundreds of thousands of Jews died at the hands of the Roman soldiers in that invasion. And Jesus told them that judgment was coming. But they, they brought it upon themselves. Let's, let's turn back to the Lord. He, he's very weak at this point. He's been up all night being bloody, made bloody uh, as he was beaten. There's a trail of blood on the ground behind him. There's bleeding cuts on his face. A crown of thorn has been cruelly mashed down into his tender forehead, and his face is bruised, and it's swollen, and it's, it's discolored. He has endured the relentless blows of the fist of those heavy uh, Roman soldiers, and uh, it seems even uh, a task almost impossible for him just to stand up, much less carry the load of this heavy wooden cross. But they put it on his back anyway, and he starts out trying. He halts, he sways, he stumbles under the load of the cross, and He's about to fall, but, but a Roman soldier's rough hand reaches over and steadies him, making him continue on uh, another step or two. And he limps on a little further, and he takes a, a step or two, and, 
Then he stumbles again, and then one more staggering step, and he sinks under the heavy wooden beam of the cross. And, and the soldiers, by this time, they're getting impatient because they want to get on with it. They want to get it over with. And so at this point, they do something that is so profoundly interesting. It probably had been done before. I'm sure the Roman soldiers had crucified many victims before. When faced with a victim that could not carry the cross all the way to the place of crucifixion, uh, I'm sure they had, they had caused this to happen before, but they, one of them, perhaps the, the one in charge, the soldier in charge, turns and he looks at the crowd and he chooses a, a man from the crowd who I'm sure was built uh, well, strong, probably a large man, uh, perhaps with muscles and uh, a sturdy frame from years of hard work. And the soldier points to him and he grabs him by the arm and he drags him over to the scene of Jesus on the ground trying to hold the cross up. And he tells this man, this complete stranger, he says, you carry his cross. What, what an incredible statement that is, ladies and gentlemen, that Jesus Christ, the, the salvation of the whole world, has to have someone else bear his cross. And I think the Lord God is trying to say something at that point to all of mankind that day and to all of us ever since. He's trying to make a statement to us about bearing a cross. Didn't Jesus say at one point in his ministry, whoever wants to follow me must take up his or her cross in order to follow me? And so here we have the cross is a problem. It's a problem for a man by the name of Simon. Simon the Cyrene. Now, uh, Cyrene is a country that is over 800 miles away. So this man is not from Jerusalem. He's here as a traveler, as a visitor, and uh, no doubt he has come here for the Passover because it was the time of the most important of all of the Jewish feasts, a time uh, when people, Jews, would come from all over civilization if they could, if they could afford it, to celebrate the Passover feast there in Jerusalem. That was, uh, that was drilled into every single uh, Hebrew when they were born to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, if possible. So here is this Jew called Simon, 800 miles from home, and he's got a problem. And his problem with the cross is the same as it is with a lot of people. It is a compulsory cross. It is one that has to be born outside of the desire of the person bearing it. 
In other words, it's when someone has to bear a cross that they don't want to bear. And we see here literally a man in that position literally having to bear the physical, tangible cross of Jesus Christ, and he didn't want to do it, I believe, at first. But he had no choice. Can I tell you today that there is no life without a cross to bear in it? Somewhere, sometime, there, there are just going to be some things that come our way that we don't like. We've got it to do. For, si for Simon, this was an unexpected cross. He was on his way to worship at the Passover, and without any warning or any planning, he was carrying an undesired compulsory cross. But let's also consider at the same time it was an honorable cross. The value, listen to this, the value of the cross that you carry will depend upon the spirit in which you take it up and carry it. Your spirit, your attitude, how do you feel about the cross that you have to carry in this life? It's a good question to ask ourselves. So, Back to our story, the Lord who is now near the point of total exhaustion, he, he gives up the cross to Simon and uh, the soldiers. They don't care who it is that they have uh, compelled to bear the cross. They don't care that it's a man who probably saved his money for a whole year just to make it to the Passover in Jerusalem. He, who knows, he might have been fulfilling a lifetime dream of his of traveling these 800 miles to worship God in the holy city. But he gets caught up with his crowd in this day uh, to see what was going on. He wasn't expecting this to happen. He didn't know there would be this exciting uh, event unfold there while he was there for the Passover in Jerusalem. And so from out of nowhere before he realizes it before he knows it. A heavy hand slaps his shoulder, and he is commanded to carry the cross of this criminal, Jesus Christ. I wonder what was going through his mind that morning. I wonder what his reactions were to the cross. I, I can just use my imagination, if you will. Allow me to here this evening for a few minutes. Uh, he probably didn't like it. He probably didn't like having the limelight thrust upon him, especially since he didn't really know anything about Jesus. This, as far as he knew, was a common criminal. Uh, he was sentenced to death, so he probably had done something horrible, something terrible, and now Simon finds himself right in the middle of all of that. And uh, I can just imagine he probably didn't want to do it. He probably was unwilling. Uh, we do read in Matthew and Mark, we find the word that is used when Simon was selected to carry the cross, it uses the word compel. He was compelled. That means they forced him to do it. And uh, I can imagine at first he might struggle to get away from the task. He might say, oh, no, not me. Pick somebody else. Uh, but Luke uses these words. He says, the soldiers laid hold of him. So the soldiers laid hold of him. Apparently, he was trying to escape. So I'm sure he's feeling 
humiliation. He's feeling uh, sick at having to do this. His face is probably burning hot with embarrassment at having to carry this criminal's cross. And then add on top of that, when he goes up to the cross to grab it, it's covered with blood. And so now he's got a, he can't get out of getting smeared with this man, this criminal's blood, getting it all over him uh, as he picks up this cross and begins to carry it. And so he slowly bends under the weight of the cross, and I'm sure unwillingly at first follows this prisoner whose cross he has been commanded to carry. But I, I want to say to you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I believe... And I'm going to show you some biblical evidence before I'm done. Although it doesn't say right here in this story. I believe that Simon most likely had a change of heart. Uh, I believe that at some moment in time, whether it was a few seconds or a minute or two or perhaps five minutes or ten minutes or perhaps... Somewhere on the journey up Golgotha's hill, it could have been after he had totally delivered the cross to the top of the hill where the crucifixion took place. It could have been at the moment when Simon watched these, these ugly, ugly behaving, terrible, cruel men crucify Jesus Christ by putting him upon this cross and driving nails into his hands and the blood again spurt forth from his body. He was already bleeding horribly. Somewhere along that road from the time he picked up that cross until the time he reached the top of Calvary's hill, I believe that Simon had a change of heart. I believe that his resentment, his bitterness, perhaps the anger that he initially felt began to melt away and give way to first maybe wonder and amazement and, and, and a rethinking of this whole thing and finally to faith. Brother Terry, uh, I'm not going to read all the verses in this chapter that I've given you, but let's put up. Luke 23 and verse 27. And it says, There followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. And verse 28 says, Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And in that interval, I believe that Simon catches a glimpse of the most wonderful man, the most marvelous, amazing human being that he has ever met in his entire life. And it changes his life forever. What does it mean to take up the cross of Jesus? I believe it makes, it means to take sides with Jesus. I believe it means to stand with him at all times. 
I believe to take up the cross of Christ means to oppose the spirit of the world in this age, even unto death. I believe it means that you and I who have done so, who have taken up his cross, we all will at some point in time bear some shame and some loss of what this world has to offer. But I believe it also means that we will have far more courage than those in this world who never know what it's like to walk with God in a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that includes carrying our cross for Him. I believe that taking up a cross will make you different from anybody and everybody that you have ever known. Amen. The Lord leaves us no room for doubt that every true follower of His must bear a cross. And it has to be a definite act of faith. You don't know what it means, what the future holds when you take up a cross for Jesus Christ. You don't know where it's going to lead you in your journey through your life. You, you, you never know what you're going to have to endure or go through. Another problem with the cross is the mistake, the folly, if you will, of trying to choose your own, your own cross. That's really best left up to God. I'm reminded in the Old Testament a story of a man who was so close to God, the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Only individual the Bible ever says that of. Of course, I'm talking about David, the little shepherd boy who grew up to, uh, after he killed the giant, grew up to, believe, to be the greatest king of Israel in their entire history. Second Samuel 24, we're not going to take the time to read it, but we find the story of David. He is at the height of his strength. His kingdom is at its greatest in every way, politically, militarily, uh, financially. And uh, David, who, though he is a man after God's own heart, was yet a man who had flaws. He made mistakes. He did not live a perfect life. And it's in one of those imperfect moments, and it usually happens during that time when things are going good, that we find ourselves tempted to stray from the straight and narrow that we should walk. This was true for David. He, uh, he got to beating his chest, so to speak, not physically, but in his own mind, reveling in the fact that he had one of the greatest, most powerful standing armies in the world. They were unbeaten militarily, and uh, he did something that made God mad. And uh, I've read this story over the years, and there were many years when I didn't really understand why God got so upset at David for doing this. But he did. I'm talking about the time that David wanted to evaluate his own greatness against the command of God. One reason God got angry with David was because he had already told David, don't 
do this. But David did it anyhow. He numbered his army. He simply sent men throughout all the tribes of Israel, all the the lands of, of Israel, to count the number of men who were able to go to war, who were soldiers in his army. It was a time of peace, so except for most likely a uh, a garrison or so at the at the capital city for protection. The rest of the army had been sent home to their wives and children. They had won the battles against the Philistines, and God had given them victory, and they were at peace. But David wanted to number his army, and God had said, don't do that. And, and I, I finally reached a place in my life where I realized why God got angry at that. God got angry because... It showed David's, uh, in a time of weakness, his deciding to, instead of trust in God, that God would give him victory should the enemy attack again. David wanted to know how much strength he had, how many fighting men he had in his army in case the enemy were to attack again and he would have to go to war. You get the picture. David was trusting in himself instead of God. And so God got angry. He said to David, after the numbers came in, his army came out to 1.3, approximately 1.3 million soldiers. And it's right then, God steps on the scene with judgment for David. And he said, all right, David, you have a choice. And he gave him three choices, and these are interesting choices. He said, "Um, you are as my judgment upon you. Uh, He, again, showed his love for David by even giving David the possibility of choosing between three different choices. He could have just told David, this is what's going to happen. But in his love for David, he gave it. David, and he probably was testing David as well, gave him three choices to choose from, which he wanted, which he desired to be, which of these three would be God's judgment upon him for disobeying God. Number one was seven years of famine. Number two was for David to flee for three months in the wilderness while his enemies chased him, trying to kill him. Or number three, the third choice, was three days of pestilence. Uh, He might lose his life in choice number two, so that left it to number one and number three. Uh, I guess he chose the last one, three days of pestilence, over seven years of famine. Uh, I guess because, number one, it would be over quicker. But David gives us a little hint as to why he chose that one. He says to God in giving him the answer, I'll pick number three, he said, Lord, let me fall into your hands. He wanted to trust in God's love and God's care for him that God had proven him over and over again for decades how much he loved David. He wanted to yield to that and lean on that that maybe God would be Uh, gracious to him so that's what God did God gave him his wish three days of pestilence 
albeit thousands of people lost their lives because of that, thousands of Jews. Uh, David got to choose his own cross. And, and some people might say, you know what, I, I want to choose this cross or that cross. I, I can do a better job of choosing, but you can't. You really can't. You cannot choose your own cross. It's best you leave that to God. If some of us were allowed to choose our own cross, here's what would happen. We would never reach our spiritual potential. Ladies and gentlemen, we would never be what God wants and has called us to be. We could never accomplish for the kingdom of God and our Savior what God wants to accomplish through us if we were to choose our own cross, if we were to choose to go the easy route rather than the hard route, which is what most of us would do most of the time. <coughs> My advice to you tonight is to let God Choose the path that you are going to walk through this life. That's the only smart way to do it. Amen. One day, reminded of another story in the Old Testament. One day, Samson found a lion in his path, and he was forced to kill it just to survive. And a few days later, walking along that path, he found that the dead lion had a honeycomb inside of it. And he loved honey. Uh, apparently, from what I read in the Old Testament, uh, in the Bible, honey was uh, somewhat of a delicacy. It wasn't readily available like it is to us today. They couldn't just go down to the local Kroger or Walmart and buy it. So he stopped to investigate, and from that experience with killing the lion and then finding the honey, the honeycomb inside its dead carcass, a few days later, he found himself... Uh, uh, in an opportunity to have a little fun with a Philistine who was the enemy of God's people, and he gave a riddle to the man. Let's read it, Judges 14 and 14. Here's his riddle. Out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness, and they could not in three days expound the riddle. You've heard of this. People have, uh, some people claim to be real good at figuring out riddles. And so a riddle is kind of an allegory. It's a, it's a figure of speech. And uh, someone tells the riddle and someone else or those listening has to guess what it means. What's the real meaning of it? And so these men uh, of the Philistines could not answer Samson's riddle. They could not tell him the meaning of it. And uh, the rest of the story goes like this. Uh, he always had as his weakness women. Samson did. And a woman, a woman ended up being his downfall. And uh, she asked him what the riddle was in secret, in the secret chambers where they were. And Samson let out the secret of what the riddle meant. And she went back and told the Philistines. And uh, so Samson lost that bet. But the moral of the story is this. The things that you fight with, the things that you struggle with in the hallways of your heart, where the real you lives and the crosses that you are forced 
to bear. Those things will most likely be the very things that save you. It's the hardships of life that God allows us to go through that, that, that temper us and that fashion us like a, a, a piece of metal in a fire. That The fire burns away the impurities and leaves the bright, shining, precious metal, the gold, the silver, uh, is all that's left over. The trials that we go through and the crosses that God says that we are to bear are like that in our lives. And if we shun those and if we try to stay away from those, then God's will can't be done in our lives. And if I've taught you anything in this church over the last 10 years, it's that the will of God is the most important thing to go after in this life. Praise God. But you're going to have to face some lions like Samson did. You're going to have to face some disappointment. You're going to have to uh, buck up against some persecution every once in a while. And some severe trials and temptations will come your way. The fruit of the conflict, the honey, if you will, that comes out of those battles is the fruit of the Holy Ghost, the fruit of the Spirit being able to operate the way it was intended by God, its giver, in your life. And, and, and when that happens, then you grow and you mature as a woman of God, as a man of God, and you become someone who loves God with all of your heart. But it's only through the trials, sometimes acute ordeals, disappointments, humiliations, it's only through those things, those crosses, that we have to bear that the best things in life will come our way. I want to close tonight with a story that uh, I came across, I had in my files, very interesting, back in the earlier part, the first half of um, the last century, the 1900s, we, we don't think about it very much. In fact, we know very little about what went on in the early days of Pentecost after the latter reign began at the turn of the 20th century with the outpouring of the Holy Ghost at the Azusa Street Revival and how that then the Holy Ghost and then Jesus' name baptism and the oneness of God, all three of these doctrines began to spread throughout the country and around the world. Uh, we don't tonight, sitting here in the comfort of this building, listening to a Bible study, we are so very far removed from life that Pentecostals had to put up with back in those days, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, uh, even 50s perhaps, but, but more so in the 20s and 30s and 40s. It was a time when the church was going through growing pains, and it was painful for a lot of people. Being Pentecostal was not... Uh, accepted. In fact, it was shunned. A lot of Pentecostals were shunned for being tongue talkers. 
even for being baptized in Jesus' name. You wonder, why would people hate so much uh, that you're baptized with different words than what they were always used to? Because the devil always hates the truth. And they suffered great persecution in those days. Some of you will remember, you're old enough to remember one of our patriarchs in the apostolic movement from the last century, the 1900s. Um, I think he's only been gone about 10 years now. Brother James Kilgore. Most of you won't remember his name, but a few of you will. Great man of God. Uh, I wish Brother Wright were here tonight. He had to take a neighbor to uh, the doctor in St. Louis, and they didn't get back in time to come to service. But Brother Wright, uh, Brother Wright, who usually sits over there, everybody knows Brother Wright. He went to Bible college in the city of Houston, Texas, at uh, one of our United Pentecostal Church Bible schools called Texas Bible College. My sister actually went there for a while. And uh, while he was there, he got to know Brother James Kilgore. Brother Wright did. In fact, when he graduated, he and Sister Wright served uh, on the staff, the ministerial staff of Brother Kilgore. At, at that time, one of the largest, well, still would be one of the largest churches in Pentecost, one of the largest churches in the apostolic ranks. Uh, it was over 1,000 people in the city of Houston, Texas. So Brother Kilgore, having laid that little background, let me get to the story, told a story uh, years ago about a sectional conference that he himself attended in the late 70s, the 1970s. And this sectional conference was held in a small town outside of Houston, Texas. Brother Kilgore said that when he arrived, there were about 40 ministers or so who were waiting on the conference to get started. The, pastors announced, or the pastor announced to the group as the meeting started, the host pastor of that church where the meeting was, said that uh, someone had requested to speak to this group of pastors. And when the appointed time came, this man came from the back, and he walked down the center aisle. As he walked down, he pulled off his hat, and all the men, these preachers inside, noted that he wore overalls that were grimy and dirty. He told them that he was the caretaker of a cemetery, on the outskirts of town, the outskirts of Houston. He had heard that there was a group of Pentecostal preachers who were going to be meeting, and he wanted to address them. This man told them that in his cemetery, there was a grave that did not have a marker. At some time in the past, it had been marked by a wooden cross, but it had long been destroyed by the elements, and now there was no marker there at all. He had hoped that these men would be able to give him some money to put a small marker at that grave. Simply put, he said, lying in this unmarked grave was a Pentecostal preacher who had brought the gospel to some of the neighboring towns. Someone there asked if he knew who it was. The man said the minister's name was a Reverend Stovall. Brother Kilgore then spoke up and said he remembered as a child when he was in the state of Oklahoma one evening, 
It had been stormy and raining all day long. In the middle of this storm, a knock came at the door. Brother Kilgore's mother went and answered the door. When she did, a man was at the front door, and he had been obviously beaten. His face was bloody and bruised. Sister Kilgore gasped, Oh, Brother Stovall, please come in. He waxed and waned in a state of unconsciousness for several days before he finally began to have his mental condition clear up. The story then came out how that he had been preaching in a nearby community and the bullies of the town had threatened him and told him that if he preached there again, that they were going to beat him within an inch of his life. He went and preached anyway at the meeting that night. After he preached, they stayed and worked the altars for some time. After the altars had cleared, Brother Stovall started walking down a long, dark road towards where he was staying that night. And about halfway, some men jumped on him, started beating him with clubs until they had clubbed him down in the road. After he had regained some of his strength back, he told the Kilgores he was leaving and he was going back to that town to preach. They asked him why he was going to go there, and he told them it was necessary that he go back to where he had left off. Needless to say, the pastors at that meeting that day took up the necessary money to put a marker on that old soldier's grave. The men who had beaten that old-timer preacher obviously had a problem with the cross. But Brother Stovall did not. He carried that cross willingly, didn't he? You know, it was true in the lives of men like that old preacher and many, many numerous others who dealt with the problem of the cross throughout their generation. And in closing tonight, I want to tell you, I believe that Simon, the one who actually carried the first cross besides the Lord, did so in his lifetime as well. I believe that the cross reached far beyond his own life because we find some interesting scriptures. I don't know if you've ever read these before and put them together or not, but I'm going to do it for you before we leave here this evening. First of all, Romans 16 and 13. Put that up, Brother Terry. It says, Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. The Apostle Paul here is talking about a man by the name of Rufus, who obviously was a saint of God, obviously someone who was near and dear to the Apostle, the great Apostle Paul. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And then let's go back to Mark, the 15th chapter, and find something that happened there. Verse 21 of Mark 15. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, I read Luke's rendition as a text at the beginning of this little Bible study. But this verse is a verse of the same event. Simon, the Cyrenian, 
being selected by the Roman soldier to carry the cross of Jesus. And Mark, because uh, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit in writing the Gospel of Mark, adds something to his writing that Luke didn't put in there. Mark lets us know that this Simon that they chose to carry the cross of Jesus on the day Jesus was crucified was the father of two boys that the people Mark writing to, the church, this is years later after the events of the life and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Years later, Mark wants those who he is writing to to know which Simon this is that bore the cross of Jesus. He is the father of two men, two brothers who obviously were known by the New Testament church at Jerusalem, men named Alexander and Rufus. So Simon had two sons, and it appears that Rufus was one of the choice saints that was in the church at Rome, as Paul wrote to Rome, because we see in Acts chapter 19 and verse 33, one more scripture in this little puzzle I'm putting together for us tonight. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude. This is one of the sons of Simon. And the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander beckoned with the hand and would have made his defense unto the people. Could it be this man, Alexander, who's facing down a terrible mob, again, for preaching the gospel, could it be that this is the other son of Simon standing with Paul, Paul wrote, in his defense at Rome? Ladies and gentlemen, the fact of the matter is this. What Simon, that day, he joined a crowd just to see what was going on in the city of Jerusalem. He had come for the Passover, but that day something got his attention, and he went to see what was going on. That day when that, that criminal couldn't carry his own cross, that man named Jesus, that day that the Roman soldier turned to Simon and said, You, you carry his cross up the hill. That day was the day that brought salvation to not just Simon, but to all of his household, because we find his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, mentioned in the Bible as a part of the New Testament church. Could I tell somebody here tonight, you're best off to leave your life to God. He knows it all. He has all power. He knows the end from the beginning. He and He alone knows what tomorrow holds for you. He knows what He has designed for your life. And that design that He has chosen for your life will never fail. It will never betray you. You follow that design. You bear that cross that God has assigned to you. 
and the reward will be greater than your imagination in this life could ever deal with could never comprehend let's stand together I, I'm reminded of the words of that old old hymn we don't even sing it in church anymore we haven't sung it in decades I, I don't remember it being sung but just occasionally when I was just a boy many many years ago but it goes like this must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free no there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me so this consecrated cross I'll bear till death shall set me free and then go home my crown to wear for there's a crown for me hallelujah hallelujah it reminds me of another old hymn that i'd like to sing a chorus or two before we leave about an old rugged cross thank you for listening to the calvary church podcast calvary church is located at 406 north 44th street in mount vernon illinois Service times are Sunday school at 1 p.m. every Sunday, except the last Sunday of each month, and worship service at 2 p.m. Also, we have an all-church service at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday. Calvary Church is affiliated with the United Pentecostal Church International. Thank you, and have a blessed day.